Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your mercy and for Your grace. Thank You that You are alive and that You are the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords, that You are sovereign and in control of everything. And Lord, as we look at the Scripture, as we see how the tomb was open and empty, how the Scriptures were open and fulfilled, how our eyes were open and believed, and how our minds were open so that they could recognize You. Lord, I pray that today that You would open up our eyes, open up our mind, open up our hearts. May we see, may we behold You, may we long for You, may we desire You. And may you come and radically change our lives. May today not just be another Sunday, but may today be a day that we've met with you, we've experienced you, we've saw you, we've tasted you, and we know that you are good. As we continue to pray, why don't you ask the Lord to speak to you this morning? Why don't you ask the Lord to open up your, your eyes and your heart, your mind? Why don't you ask the Lord that today will just be a different day. A day where you can walk out of here knowing you've met with Him. A day where you walk out of here just in awe of Him as you behold Him. Holy Spirit, come and fill this place. Come and reveal truth to us. Stir our hearts and our affections. Convict us, correct us, encourage us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You may have a seat. It's good seeing you guys. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Luke. Uh, Luke chapter 24, um, but before we get into Luke 24, also go ahead and turn to, to Luke chapter 1, just to kind of lay the groundwork for us. Um, and, and so the reality of, of the resurrection is it is Christianity stands and falls on the resurrection. Like without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. In fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that if the resurrection did not happen and we believe it, that we are fools. Actually, he says we ought to be pitied more than anyone in this life. And so nothing that happened before the resurrection will have any meaning if the resurrection did not occur. Think about this. The virgin birth would be meaningless. The miracles and teachings of Jesus would be meaningless. His perfect obedience would be meaningless. Even the crucifixion would be meaningless if Jesus remained Dead. And so the question we got to ask ourselves today is then how do we know that the resurrection actually occurred? Now, now before we look at Luke chapter 24, I think Luke 1 is kind of helpful for us because uh, obviously Luke wrote this gospel, the gospel according to Luke, and, and he kind of gives us insight of why he wrote the gospel of Luke and the narrative and how he got all the evidence. And this is what he says in Luke chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. He says, many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses 
and servants of the word handed them down to us. So, it also seemed good to me since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you in, in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theopolis, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you've been instructed. So in other words, what Luke is saying, he is writing to Theopolis, and the reason why he's writing to Theopolis is because he wants Theopolis to have certainty concerning the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus, and the teachings of Jesus. In other words, how does Theopolis know that he should believe everything that he is reading about? Luke is saying, I've looked at everything and I want you to have certainty in what you believe so that you know that what you've been instructed in regards to the person and the work and the teachings of Jesus, you know that it is true. So in a sense, Luke points out to Theopolis that he can have certainty because Christianity, first of all, is an historical faith. Look at verse 1. It says, events that have been fulfilled among us. So it is an historical faith. In other words, there's actually events that occurred in history. It's an historical faith. But then he also, the second thing he says, it's a verifiable faith. So not only is it events that occurred in history, but it's verifiable by eyewitnesses. There were eyewitnesses who saw these events, who could testify about these events. And then the third aspect says, he says, not only is it a historical faith, a verifiable faith, but it's also a biblical faith. Verse 1 says, many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses, and this is the part, and servants of the word handed them down to us. In other words, it's a biblical faith that they were servants of the word. They were prophets who wrote down some of these events before they even occurred so that it could be verified. And so Luke tells us, that Christianity is an historical faith, a verifiable faith, and a biblical faith. And these truths are important because we can apply it to the resurrection, that we have a historical, biblical, verifiable evidence for us to have certainty that Jesus Christ is the resurrected Lord. Now, in Luke 24... He's going to show us four things of the resurrected Lord, how he opened up their eyes, their minds, and their lives, and we see the effects that it took in their lives as we look at the account of the resurrection. So let's look at Luke chapter 24, verse 1. It says this, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb bringing the spice they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? asked the men. He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, It is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and rise on the third day? And they remembered his words. Returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women were with them telling the apostles these things. 
But these words seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the women. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb, and when he stooped to look in, he saw only the linen cloths. So he went away amazed at what happened. So so if you're taking notes, the very first thing that the resurrected Lord opened was the tomb was open and empty. The tomb was open and empty. So obviously very early in the morning, these two women rose up to prepare Jesus' body for a proper burial. Now in the Gospel of Matthew, he tells us that as these women were making their way to the tomb, they were trying to figure out how in the world are we going to roll this big stone away. There's no way we can do it, but yet nonetheless it shows us their devotion because even though they knew they couldn't roll this stone away, they still went to prepare Jesus' body for a proper burial. And when they arrived, there were three surprises. The very first surprise, they found that the the, the stone has been rolled away and the tomb is empty and Jesus' body was missing. And so they've already been in mourning and now the one they loved is gone. The second surprise they experience is that all of a sudden you have these two men in dazzling clothes appear before them. And I love how Luke describes these two men. He doesn't call them angels, even though technically he's ang- they are angels. But remember, uh, Luke is a medical doctor. And so he's a little hesitant when talking about the supernatural. And he's thinking about his audience. So he describes them as two men in dazzling clothes. And look at the response of these women. They fall to the ground because of the glory of these two men in dazzling clothes just like anybody who's experienced an angel fall to the ground and can you imagine their response if they experience the glory of God the third comes this surprising message look at verse 5 this surprising message he said they say why are you looking for the living among the dead? Now, now this question serves both of a, as a correction and an announcement. Why? Because they were looking in the wrong place. You do not find people that are alive in a graveyard. And so, in a sense, they are announcing that Jesus is alive, but also rebuking and correcting him. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? And then he get, they, they give him a reminder. Look at verse 6. He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, It is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and rise on the third day. Now, obviously, this is not what the women were expecting. They were expecting a dead body to be prepared for burial. And the reason why they were not expecting the tomb to be open and to be empty is because it's not that they did not know, but rather they forgot the teachings of their Lord. This is why the angels are reminding them of the teaching. Did you not remember what Jesus taught you? That he was going to suffer, he's going to die at the hands of sinful men, and on the third day he will be raised? And yet they for, forgot. And we see how they forgot because they went to the tomb to prepare his body for burial. Instead, they were surprised. 
And I think we can apply maybe a little bit to this to our lives. Nothing can be more important to the Christian than to constantly remember the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are a people that are quick to forget. Think about these women who walked with Jesus for three years. How many times did Jesus have to teach them that the reason why the Son of Man has come is for him to suffer and die at the hands of sinful men? But on the third day, he will be raised. And yet, after Jesus suffered, after Jesus died, what happened? They forgot everything. And this is the tendency of man. We have a tendency to forget the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have a tendency of forgetting of who we are in Christ and what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. We have a tendency to wander. We have a tendency to stray away from the truth. And this is why it's so important for us to constantly come together, whether we gather in one another's homes or we gather one another here at church, is to remind one another of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done for us and accomplished for us on the cross and what do we have as a result of the work of Jesus Christ maybe for some of you you've already forgotten you've forgotten of what Jesus has accomplished for you and the rights and the privileges you have in Jesus Christ just like these women and when the angels reminded them they remembered and all of a sudden they were no longer in surprise but what did they do they ran To tell the disciples, Jesus is not dead, but Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty. The stone has been rolled away. And yet, how did the disciples respond? They didn't believe them, which shows us not only did these women forget, but these disciples forgot all that Jesus taught them. And so they didn't believe, and yet even Peter uh, maybe did believe, but I don't think he believed. He wanted to see with his own eyes. So he ran to the tomb, saw that it was open, saw that it was empty, but then he saw the linen cloth placed on its side, which is very strange. So so if there's any accusation of maybe uh, somebody stealing the body of Jesus, the chances of them unwrapping the body and just taking the body is very slim. And yet how was Peter's reaction? He is perplexed. He is amazed. In other words, he's wondering what in the world is going on. And so everyone is amazed. Everyone is perplexed. But no one really knows yet what is happening. All they know is that the tomb is open and it is empty. Look look, look at verse 13. It says this. Now that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. Mark verse 16, we're going to talk about it. Then he asked them, What is this dispute that you're having with each other as you're walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened there in these days? What things? he asked them. 
So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in action and in speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all of this, it is the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. Verse 25, he said to them, How foolish and slow you are to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scripture. So here's the second thing if you're taking notes that the resurrected Lord opened. The scriptures were opened and fulfilled. So the very same day, these two disciples made their way from, Emmaus, from Jerusalem to Emmaus, which is about a seven-mile journey. And as they were talking and, and, and about everything that had happened, Jesus came near to them. And I just love the fact that Jesus meets them where they are. He draws near to them. But look at verse 16. As I said, mark it. But they were prevented from recognizing him. So obviously these disciples knew who Jesus was, have walked with Jesus, could recognize his voice, would be able to see him. So it's not like Jesus is appearing to two strangers. He's appearing to two of his disciples who've walked with Jesus for three years. It's like me walking with you for three years. I know you. I've seen you. I've talked with you. I know everything almost about you because we have this intimate relationship for the last three years. And yet they were unable to recognize Jesus. Why? Because they were so distraught? Because they were so overwhelmed? No, what does verse 16 say? They were prevented from recognizing him. Who prevented them? Not themselves. God did. God prevented them from recognizing Christ at this point. And in a sense, what this is showing us is even though they're walking with Jesus, they are spiritually blind. And so the Lord asked him, what are you talking about? And, and notice the, the irony here. Cleopas says, are you the only one in Jerusalem that does not know? Have you no idea what just happened? And the irony is he is the only one that knows what happened. They don't know what happened. And yet they're treating Jesus as if he knows nothing. And so Jesus humorously plays along with them. Because they really did not understand what happened, they started to break things down, discussing Jesus of who he was and and what has happened, all the events leading up to his death. And yet, they did not recognize Jesus. They did not know who he was and what he has accomplished. And, And I think we can apply this to our lives. These men knew the facts of the gospel. 
They could tell you of who Jesus was. They could tell you all the events leading up to the death of Jesus and recite every fact. And yet, they failed to see the reality of the gospel. They knew the facts of it, but they couldn't see the face of it. And so their problem wasn't an intellectual problem. Their problem was a spiritual problem. And maybe there are many of you, you might know the intellectual facts about the gospel, but you don't know, you can't see the face of the gospel. You might be able to tell me what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, that he died, he was buried, and he was raised, but yet you're still spiritually blind. You're walking with Jesus and you cannot see him. You fail to recognize the face of the gospel. And what does Jesus do? I love what he does. He, he begins to rebuke them. Look, look at verse 20, 25. He said to them, How foolish and slow you are to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And so in other words, Jesus rebukes them, but now in verse 27, he's going to give them a message. Verse 27 says this, Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. Uh, don't, don't miss this. This is very important. How does Jesus reveal himself? He opens up the word of God and preaches to them. Verse 27, it says, Beginning with Moses, a.k.a. Genesis, all the way through Malachi, all the prophets, he is showing them how Scripture is faithfully pointing to himself. So there's two observations. The first observation is this, is this first Jesus believed that the whole Bible is about him. Which means that when we read the Bible, we can't think it's about us. Why? Because Jesus is just teaching us, it's not about you, it might include you, but it's all about me. And so leading from, from, from Genesis all the way through the prophets, he was teaching what the prophets and everything, how it pointed to him, which means that if you want to properly read your Bible, it has to point to Jesus. If you read your Bible without pointing to Jesus, you're reading it wrong. There is a right way of reading Scripture. There is a wrong way of reading Scripture. A right way of reading Scripture will always point to Jesus Christ. You're like, Neil, that's kind of arrogant saying there's a right and wrong way. It is arrogant in a sense on my part, but it's not because what does Jesus say? It's not me saying it. It's Jesus saying it. Beginning from Moses all the way through the prophets interpreting these events concerning himself in Scripture. And so Jesus preaches to them because Jesus believes the whole Bible is about him. And the second observation is this. Jesus believes that our faith should not be rooted in a personal experience only, but our faith should be also rooted in Scripture. Why does Jesus preach to them? He could have just revealed himself. He could, they, they could have just had a personal experience with Jesus. But Jesus understood that a personal experience with him is not good enough. 
You need a spiritual experience that is rooted in the Bible. And this is why he preaches to them. And this is why what Luke's point is. Not only do we have an historical faith, in other words, events that occurred in history, and we have verifiable faith. There are eyewitnesses that can, that can uh, uh, support these events. But we also have a biblical faith. There's biblical evidence. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's taking the Bible, the Old Testament, and showing them how the Old Testament was fulfilled by himself. We believe these things because not only did the scripture predicted them, but also because they were fulfilled in history. Like, think about this. God will not let the message that saved the world rest on human experience and oral testimony. The message of salvation is so big, he's not going to give it over to the hands of just personal experience and hearsay. This is why he wrote it down. He wrote it down beforehand so that it could be verified. He wrote it down so that it could be passed on from generation to generation. And this is why Jesus takes the Bible and preaches a message to him, to them, because it was written down. He wanted them to have more than a personal experience, but a biblical faith. So the question for us, again, application, what is your faith rooted in? Is, is your faith rooted simply in personal experience? Is your faith simply rooted in oral testimony, a hearsay of what I'm telling you or what other people are telling you? Or is your faith rooted in Scripture and what the Scripture is teaching you, what you're reading in Scripture and seeing how all of Scripture is faithfully pointing to Jesus Christ? And so Luke shows us how the resurrected Lord how the tomb was open and empty, how the scriptures were open and fulfilled. And the third thing, if you're taking notes, their eyes were opened and they recognized. Let's look at verse 28. It says this. They came near the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going further. But they urged him, stay with us, because it's almost evening, and now the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. Look at verse 31, mark it. Then their eyes were open, and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, Weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scripture to us? That very hour they got up, returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those with them gathered together who said, The Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. Then they began to describe what happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Now, now the, the facts of the gospel, even the biblical interpretation of the gospel is not enough to truly see Jesus. In other words, you can't just hear the gospel and then see Jesus. You're like, why not? You just simply can't. How do I know that? Were their eyes open after hearing the sermon? No. Look at verse 31. What does verse 31 say? 
their eyes were opened and they recognized. Who opened their eyes? God opened up their eyes. In other words, and what that means for us, we can't just merely know about Jesus through a Bible study or some, have some intellectual understanding. Even though that is important, we must have a revelation from God. God must open our eyes. But, but let's start from the top here in verse 28. Uh, I love that as they kind of come near to Emmaus, Jesus pretends to, to go further down the road. And yet they stop to urge Jesus to come with them. And I like what J.C. Ryle in his observation is. He says this, that Christ does not always force his gifts upon us, unsought and unsolicited. He loves to draw our attention and our desires and to compel us to exercise our spiritual affections but waiting for our prayers in other words the lord likes to be sought in desire did jesus know he's going to eat with them yes but why did he pretend to move further on because he wanted them to desire him to invite him in to to seek him and so the lord jesus doesn't force himself upon him he doesn't say hey i've arrived here's my message here's my eyes open i'm opening up your eyes rub-a-dub-dub believe in me but rather he draws them he leads them he seeks inside of them this desire for him so instead he pretends to move on and in verse 29 it says that they urged him and what does the lord do he stays. And while the Lord blesses the food, he breaks it, he hands it out. Verse 31, their eyes were opened. They didn't open their own eyes. God opened it for them. And the moment that they recognized Jesus and their eyes were open, Jesus all of a sudden disappeared. Can you imagine their reaction? Did you just see that or did I pretend to see that? that? That was really Jesus, right? But now he is gone. And they were so convinced that they saw Jesus that late in the evening, what did they do? Immediately, they went back from Emmaus to Jerusalem, another seven-mile hike. It's not hopping in your car and just quickly going to the grocery store. It's seven miles of walking after another seven miles of walking. And they were so overwhelmed and so joyful that they got on the road seven miles walking down to tell the disciples... Jesus is alive. We saw him. Our eyes were opened. We recognized him. Look at verse 32. After their eyes were opened and they saw him and he disappeared. Verse 32 says, They said to each other, Weren't our hearts burning within us? while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us. In other words, even though their eyes were closed, the eyes were veiled, even the presence of Jesus caused a burning sensation in their hearts. 
The very words of Jesus proclaiming the scriptures to them caused something in their hearts, even though they couldn't recognize, even though they couldn't see it, caused something in their hearts. And when their eyes were open, they were able to put two and two together. The presence of the Lord causes a burning in our hearts. And so for many of you, maybe as you're hearing the words of Jesus, it's causing a burning in your hearts. And they were able to recognize him, and they made their way back to Jerusalem. And so Luke shows us not only was the tomb open and empty, we see that the scriptures were open and fulfilled. We see that their eyes were open and they recognized. And the fourth thing we're going to see, if you're taking notes, as their minds were opened and they believed. Look at verse 36. As they were saying these things, He himself stood in their midst. That's Jesus. He said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and terrified. Again, this phrase, he himself, is important. Because the phrase teaches us that this was not some fantasy or delusion, but this was Jesus himself. Jesus in the flesh. In other words, the resurrection, when we speak of the resurrection, we are speaking of a literal, a physical, a bodily resurrection from the dead. It's not simply a ghost. It's not simply a fantasy or a spiritual resurrection. It is the Lord himself. And this is what Luke is telling us. It is the Lord himself that is standing among them. He's not hovering among them. He is standing among them. And then this Lord himself speaks. And what is the very first word he speaks? What does it say? Verse 36, he said to them, Peace to you. Now now think about these words. You're like, okay, what's the big deal? Peace to you. Think about what the disciples did the last time they saw Jesus. When Jesus was arrested, one betrayed him, one denied him, and the rest abandoned him. What would you do? What would happen if you betrayed, denied, and abandoned your master? How would he approach you? Wouldn't he say, I am so disappointed in you? I thought I trained you better. I can't believe, I even warned you were going to deny me, and you said you weren't, and yet you did it anyway. I told you I was going to suffer. I told you I was going to die. I told you I was going to be raised, and yet you forgot. You all abandoned me, left me by myself. You are useless followers. Away from you, I don't want anything to do with you. No, he doesn't say that. What does he say? Peace to you. J.C. Riles, he says this. He says, What a wonderful saying when you consider the men to whom it was addressed. 
It was addressed to 11 disciples who three, three days before had shamefully forsaken their master and fled, had broken their promises, forgotten their profession of readiness to die for their faith. They have scattered every man to his own and left their master to die alone. One of them had denied him three times. All of them had proved to be backsliders and cowards. And yet behold the return which their master makes to his disciples. Not a word of rebuke is spoken. Not a single sharp saying falls from his lips. Calmly and quietly he appears in the midst of them and he begins by speaking peace. What does that mean? For us, what's the implications for us? You know what that means? J.C. Ryle says this. It shows us that the Lord is far more willing to forgive men than men are to be forgiven. Far more willing to pardon men than men are willing to be pardoned. Free, full, and undeserved forgiveness to the very uttermost is not the manner of man, but it is the manner of Christ. No word is more sweet than the words of Jesus that says, Peace to you. Now, now again, let, let's apply this to our lives. Uh, on, on Good Friday, we talked about how um, a, a little bit, how we saw the woman pouring this alabaster jar of perfume all over Jesus. And really, really what she saw, she saw that Jesus is worth more than anything that she could ever offer to him. And what did Judas do? Jesus, Judas evaluated Jesus as, that's a waste of resources. Jesus is not worth it. So instead, he based his worth on Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And, and so the question we, we asked ourselves to reflect upon is, how much is Jesus worth to you? And I think that's a very hard question. What are you willing to give up for Jesus? And the reality of it is all of us would like to think we're like this woman that will take our most prized possessions and pour it all over Jesus. But the reality of it is we're all like Judas, willing to sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and for some of us even less. And so even think about your week. How many times have you denied Jesus? How many times have you betrayed Jesus? How many times have you abandoned Jesus? How many times have you sold him short? Have you rejected him and not believed in him and not been in awe of him but ran away from him? You've rebelled against him. You've sinned against him. Shame on you. And yet Jesus doesn't say that. What does he say? Peace to you this is the beauty of the gospel it's also the craziness of the gospel because the gospel doesn't give you what you deserve condemnation but it offers forgiveness and it's not based on your behavior it's based on his grace and his work that he's accomplished for you on the cross and these disciples is experiencing the reality of the gospel. They themselves stand guilty before Jesus for abandoning him, betraying him, denying him, for being a coward, 
for not willing to give their lives to Jesus because they did not believe Jesus was worth it. And yet Jesus confronts them and he says, peace to you. Look at their reaction, verse 37. They weren't relieved, weren't they? No, they were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. Why are you troubled, he asked them, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you can see I have. Having said this, he showed them his hands and feet. But while they were still amazed and in disbelief because of their joy, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate in their presence. What's going on here? Are they believing? No. They are startled. They are petrified. Does Jesus provide him evidence? Yes. What evidence does he give him? His very body. He says, look at me. Touch me. See me. Just, just give me something to eat so you can see I'm eating this piece of fish. So you can believe I'm no ghost because ghosts can't eat. I'm going to eat this fish. I'm going to enjoy this fish. And you're going to watch me enjoy this fish. And yet they could not still believe. They were amazed, perplexed. What in the world is going on? Verse 44. He told them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Verse 45 highlighted. What does verse 45 say? Then he opened their minds to understand what? The scripture. Isn't it amazing that they did not believe after Jesus shows his body, but they only believed after he opens up their minds to believe scripture? Isn't it incredible that the evidence that stood out to them to believe is not Jesus' actual physical body, which in my opinion, that's more than enough. But the actual evidence is the very word of God. So in other words, two sermons that Jesus preaches. He preaches to the, to the disciples on their way to Emmaus. And what does he do? From Moses all the way to the prophets, show them how Scripture had to be fulfilled and how Scripture points to him. What does he do here again? He preaches another message. From Moses, a.k.a. Genesis, all the way through the prophets, all the way through the Psalms, show how he fulfilled Scripture. And it was not only after he preached that what happened? Their minds were open and they believed. Who opened up their minds? Jesus did. Isn't that amazing? He preached the message, pointed to them. All of this had to take place so that scripture could be fulfilled. And what Luke is really doing is, is constantly showing us, how do we know the certainty of the resurrection? We know the certainty of the resurrection because it's an historical faith. It is an event that had occurred. There's eyewitnesses. It's verifiable, but it's also biblical. And what does Jesus do? 
He shows himself physically, but he preaches the word to them. And as he preaches the word to them, he opens up their mind so that they can understand the word. Which means all we have to do is proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to show people how Jesus fulfilled the scripture and how all of scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation is faithfully pointing to Jesus. He is the hero in the story. And who opens up their eyes? Who opens up their mind to understand the scripture and to believe? He does. And we can have the certainty. And the second message that, that, that he, he preaches to them is not just a message for them to believe that he is alive and believe that scripture were fulfilled in who he is and what he's done, but it's also to prepare them for the mission ahead of time. Look at verse 46. He also said to him, this is, this is what is written. The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And look, I am sending you what my Father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. In other words, he's saying, don't lock yourself up in this room because of fear. You don't have anything to fear anymore. Why? Because I am alive. And everything that was written about me throughout Scripture has been fulfilled. And I'm sending you to go and preach repentance to all the nations. And you will receive the promised Holy Spirit that will empower you. But stay in Jerusalem. So what does Luke show us as we wrap this up? He shows us how the resurrected Lord opened up the tomb and it was empty. The scriptures were open and fulfilled. Their eyes were open and they were able to recognize. Their minds were open and they were able to believe. And so the question for you, are your eyes opened? Are your minds opened? Or are you like the disciples that, that, that have forgotten the gospel? Or maybe you know about the gospel facts, but you've forgotten the face of the gospel, namely Jesus. Or maybe you find yourself condemning yourself because of your sin, because you're so perplexed that Jesus would come to you and say, peace to you. In other words, he's saying, I know what you did. I know what you've done. I know what you're going to do. Peace to you. There's forgiveness. And my prayer for you is that the Lord would open up your eyes, open up your mind, so that you may believe in the scripture and grab hold of that forgiveness and that grace that's been extended to you and that you would marvel at it. Let me pray for us. Oh, Heavenly Father, Grace is such a hard thing to understand. 
as we look at the grace that you've extended to your disciples that have abandoned you, betrayed you, and denied you. As you drew near to them and you came to them and you opened up their eyes and their mind, you did not rebuke them, you did not punish them, but you proclaimed peace to them. And truly they could have peace between them and you because of what you have done for them on the cross. You have covered their sins in full because you've died for their sins with your precious blood. You've paid for it. You've satisfied the wrath of God that was geared towards them so that they could have peace with you. And Lord, I pray that this morning uh, that you would open up our eyes, open up our mind, may our hearts be burning with your words. Lord, you know who we are. You know what we've done. You know what we're thinking. You know what we're going to do. You know what we're wrestling with. Can you draw near to us? Can you open up our eyes to recognize you? Can you open up our mind to believe the scripture? Can you transform our lives? Can you help us to understand what we have in you, the peace that we have in you, the righteousness we have in you, the joy and the victory we have in you? May all of these truths become a reality to us, and may it transform us and may it lead us as we remain rooted in your word. So come, Lord, speak to us, convict us, and help us to worship you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand. Let us worship our resurrected Lord.